Wednesday nights now, I'll give you a real quick synopsis of where we're at. We started Revelation with seven letters to seven churches. And uh, shortly after that, we see John called up into heaven and sees the vision of um, the seven-sealed book. And uh, we talked a little bit about that in the early chapters, chapters 4 and 5. And uh, then the seals began to be opened. Each of the seal was uh, a judgment on the earth. And six of those seals were opened. And then when the seventh seal was opened, it contained seven more judgments called the trumpet judgments. And uh, we spent some time going through each of those. Uh, We've gone through uh, six of them now. We haven't quite finished the sixth one yet. Um, At the end of the fourth trumpet judgment, uh, we find the angel... um, giving three woes, and the first woe was found in the fifth judgment. The second woe is found in the sixth trumpet judgment, and we'll find that the, the third woe is in the seventh trumpet judgment as we get into chapter 11 and following. And so uh, that kind of brings us up to speed. In chapter 10, we're still dealing with uh, kind of a transition or a, a, a pause in the narrative, if you will, between the judgments. We've already finished uh, pretty much the sixth seal judgment, and then chapter ten and chap- part of chapter eleven um, deal with <coughs> deal with some things that are kind of um, in a transitional time period between this. Although it does not seem chronologically that there is a pause uh, after the sixth trumpet judgment, uh, there does seem to be a change in the narrative for two chapters, chapter ten and eleven, before we get to uh, the seventh uh, trumpet judgment. And in this narrative, in the 10th um, 10th and the 11th chapters, uh, we find that there is a uh, rejection of men uh, at the end of the 6th judgment uh, to turn to Christ, even though they know that these judgments are from Him. And it's one of those things that we look at and we think, boy, how can men be be so hard-hearted as to think those things? And um, then we find this kind of pause in chapter 10 that deals with, uh, an angel coming down and a, a small book, a little book that is described. And out of that little book, we talked about the fact that there were seven thunders that, under, uh, that uh, uttered their voices uh, in verses 4 and 5. And that's kind of around where we left off. We went a little further than that, but I want to start there tonight. So we're going to begin in verse number 4 uh, of chapter 10, if you will. <clears throat> so after John sees this, and this is a, a separate vision here, uh, when he sees this uh, little book that's open in verse number 2, and it says after that, he said in verse number 4, and when this, uh, verse number 3, and then cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the thun- seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lift up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which therein are that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he shall begin to sound the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And so these seven thunders take place. There's a couple things that are interesting to me about this. First of all, John understands what the thunders said. 
because he was getting ready to write them down and was told not to. The other thing that we need to understand about these seven thunders <clears throat> is that there are some things that God chooses not to reveal to us. And we can speculate as to why that is, and there probably are any number of reasons why there are some things God chooses not to reveal to us. It could be that it's beyond what we could understand. Uh, it could be that uh, it's not something that He feels is important enough to us or necessary for us to know at this time, uh, but something that will happen in the future and will be important to those events. So uh, don't try to read a whole lot into the fact that God told John um, to seal these things up. Um, if God had intended for us to know Him, He would have had John write them down. And I've heard a lot of preachers speculate, well, what was it that they said? And they've tried to say, well, it could have been some things about this or it could have been some things about that. Uh, but understand this, that if God wanted us to know it, He would have revealed it to us. I mean, the book of Revelation is called Revelation for a reason. And that is because God is revealing some things that was not before understood. Uh, there had been prophetic uh, things spoken about the end-time events, but a lot of it was misunderstood or was not understood clearly. And God gave revelation so that the early church and those following could understand very clearly the things of the end-time events. There were people in the early church, especially in the church at Corinth and in Thessalonica, many of them that thought that the... Uh, the return of Christ and the tribulation period was already taking place, the rapture and all of those things. And so uh, Paul had to correct some of those things. And, of course, John is the last one to write. And uh, he kind of uh, sums it all up, gives the final uh, thing that God wants us to know about the end time events. But understand that if God wanted us to know it, he would have told us. All right? Uh, I don't know how many times I've heard Revelation taught and I've heard people get bogged down and, well, it could be this, it could be that. And I don't mind saying a couple things that it could be, but I don't dwell on those things. Those things that God chose not to give us are, are not that important to us because He didn't give them to us. So uh, just keep that in mind as we go through. There's going to be some other times. In fact, if we get that far tonight, there's going to be another thing we're going to look at that I think oftentimes people really strain at and try to, I mean, long discussions. And I've heard people debate and even get angry at each other uh, when there's a disagreement on it. And the truth is, we don't know. And, it, and we need to understand that there are some things God chooses not to let us know. And we need to be okay with that. Uh, notice as we get to verse number 6 in chapter number 10, that uh, this angel that had, uh, had come at the beginning of chapter 10 and uh, had uh, uh, brought uh, this, uh, had in his hand this little book and, and was responsible for these events beginning. In verse number 6, the Bible says... Um, let's go back to verse 5. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven, uh, the heaven and the things that are therein are, and the earth and things that therein are, and the sea and things that therein are, and there uh, could be that, that there should be time no longer. And uh, we find here again that this angel more than likely is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's uh, a lot of good indication of that in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 10. Uh, one of the other things that I think is, is a very in, interesting uh, thing that helps us believe that this could be very well the Lord Jesus Christ Himself doing these things is verse number 6 where it says, And He sware by Him that liveth forever and ever. And uh, it's interesting. Some people have said, well, uh, that's not Christ then because He's swearing to uh, Him that's in heaven that liveth forever and ever. 
But uh, take your Bibles, if you will, and uh, let me see if I have the reference here. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. I want you to see something here. Hebrews chapter number 6. And uh, let's go down to verse number 13. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, notice this, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing will I bless thee, and multiplying will I multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained promise. And we find here that, that uh, God is swearing by himself. He's, he said, There is nothing I can swear greater by to Abraham than myself. And so I don't think that verse 6 is an argument to say it's not the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I think it certainly still could be because of that fact in uh, Hebrews chapter number 6. But uh, notice the uh, description of the one that he is uh, referring to that is in heaven. He says, He who created heaven and the things that are therein. And by the way, uh, there needs to be a revival of God's people taking the biblical account of creation literally. And what the Bible says is what happened. We don't have to try to read into it and make it last millions of years or thousands of years. There's tons of science that that scientists look at and observe, but they refuse to come to the conclusion that we have a young earth. And uh, many, many, many illustrations of that. And uh, I've heard some of them say, well, uh, why are we seeing stars that are billions of light years away if it takes that long for the light to reach us? Well, God created a mature creation. He didn't create babies and allow them to grow. He created Adam and Eve. They were already adults. Uh, people argue, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, the chicken did, because God created a mature uh, creation. He created light, and it was in place before He created the stars and the sun and the moon to rule the light. And so the light was already in place. It was already through that distance and then the stars begin to shine and, and to rule that light and the sun. And uh, the moon reflects that, of course. And it's not a problem for God uh, to make light transition billions of years in an instant. And uh, for us to think that that's beyond God's capability is limiting God. And so understand that there, is, there are tons and tons of, of uh, scientific, and we're not going to do a science study uh, tonight, but um, we've held off on doing any further uh, college courses because of the summertime, uh, but I'm very, very seriously considering, and have been for some months now, uh, maybe teaching a four or five week uh, on a Tuesday night during our uh, our college time on creation and evolution, the idea of a biblical creation account, and getting into more scientific uh, things that the Bible speaks of, and uh, it might be announcing that fairly soon. If you're interested, we'd like to do something along those lines and show that there is uh, certainly uh, tons of evidence to... Uh, we don't need it to believe the creation account. We believe it regardless. But it's good when science lines up with it, isn't it? Uh, in fact, it's amazing to me how many times science has to catch up to the Bible. And uh, so anyway, let's uh, go on. That was just a side note. But uh, in verse number uh, 7, we find this. That it says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel... When he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God, that's an interesting phrase, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. I've read several commentators and different folks uh, regarding this phrase, the mystery of God. 
And uh, oftentimes there are references. Paul uses uh, references of the mystery of the gospel, uh, the mystery of God in Colossians chapter number 2. He refers to uh, the wisdom of God in a mystery. He refers in 1 Corinthians. He refers to the testimony of God being a mystery in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 also. And the mystery of God, best I can understand it from the usage and the context of every other place that's used in that sense, is referring to the redemptive plan of God for man. This is something that was a mystery. And before Christ died on Calvary, was spoken of in the Old Testament and pointed to in the Old Testament, but so many people did not understand it. And uh, I I don't believe, I I really believe that, that even Satan did not understand that God had a redemptive plan in place. Had he had a, understood the fullness of the redemptive plan of man, uh, I don't think he would have done some of the things that happened to Christ in his earthly ministry or the time even of Calvary. Uh, and there is good cause to believe that there is, uh, this is speaking here of the redemptive plan of man. Let's look in Amos chapter number 3 for a minute. Amos chapter number 3. Can get to it. It's one of the minor prophets. I'm in the New Bible trying to get to it. Okay, Amos chapter number 3 and verse number 7. Amos chapter 3 and verse number 7. Amos says this uh, prophetically, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but He revealeth His secret unto His servants, the prophets. And uh, so there were some things that were not previously known that God gave to His prophets. Later on, He's given it to us in the Bible, and we know the mystery of God at this point because we have the Word of God in our hands and understand God's redemptive plan. Look also in Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. And uh, let's look in verse number 25. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse number 25. Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all, uh, unto you all of my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. And so God uses these men, the prophets in the Old Testament, later on the apostles, and now through the word that he has given to us in his full revelation to reveal to us things that were previously not known. That's why God sent these things uh, to us. And uh, then also look in Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. And let's look in verse number 4. And once again we'll see this. And the Lord uh, hath sent unto you all his servants the prophets, rising early and sending them. But ye have not hearkened nor inclined your ear to hear. And so again he's been uh, working on trying to get, get men to understand his mystery for many, many years. And uh, men would not hear oftentimes. And then later on, we find that uh, through the uh, prophets or the apostles, uh, especially uh, Peter and Paul, who wrote a lot of our Bible and John, uh, a lot of our New Testament, dealing with the redemptive work of Christ. And they often refer in their books and their letters to the testimony of God, the wisdom of God in a mystery, or the mystery of God. And so when we talk about this uh, angel in verse number 7, He says, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. 
as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. And so the redemptive work of man is uh, being completed at this time. And the voice which he heard, which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel, and he said unto him, Give me the little book, and, and, I, uh, and said unto him, excuse me, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall make thy mouth sweet as honey. And notice this, that the angel says it's going to make your belly bitter, but it's going to be in your mouth sweet as honey. But then look what John says in verse 10. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And he reverses the order here, but he says the same thing. He says, And it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. This little book, I think, in in context with verse 8, probably dealing with the mystery of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the redemptive work of man. This little book containing it, of course, I think is the key here, that this contains the redemptive plan of God. And it is sweet to the mouth, but it is bitter to the belly. And by that, we mean that the gospel message is very sweet in its mercy and in its grace. But understanding the rejection of that gospel plan is very, very bitter because it requires the wrath and the judgment of God. And how can something from God be both bitter and sweet at the same time other than the gospel message? It's interesting that in Psalm 19 it speaks of the fact that uh, His Word is uh, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. Uh, In Psalm 119 He speaks of the sweetness to the mouth um, uh, and uh, yet then we find that there are times that God's judgment is very bitter, very hard to swallow. And so again, I think all of these verses from 7, 8, uh, 7 down to verse number 11 are dealing here with this little book containing the redemptive plan of man and that God says to John, listen, uh, my redemptive work is, is coming to a completion here. We're finishing it here. It, is, it has come to its fruition We've given opportunity and mercy for man to accept me as their Savior. Many have rejected, many have declined, and as a result, they are now being judged. And while it is sweet to the mouth, the more we digest and the more we meditate and think on it, the more bitter it becomes because we understand that there are many who will suffer the wrath of God. And then moving on to chapter number 11, and we'll just get started in this and then we'll end here shortly. <clears throat> chapter number ten and uh, or chapter number eleven specifically is uh, a a brief overview. It's kind of an umbrella picture, if you will, or snapshot of what's getting ready to come in chapters twelve through chapter twenty. So, if you can keep that in mind as you read Revelation, when you get to chapter eleven, you read it, and it's kind of a blanket, a high bird's eye view of what's going to happen in chapters twelve to twenty. When it gets done with chapter eleven. Then it's almost as if John goes back and says, okay, now let me fill in all the details. Now that I've given you the gist of what's going to happen in this next three and a half year period, uh, which is the latter half of the tribulation period, now that we've given you the picture of it, now let's go and give you the details uh, of it through chapter 12 and chapter tw- through, through chapter 20. So let's look in verse number 11. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out, 
and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now, forty and two months is three and a half years. In the reference that is being made here, he's referring to the Gentiles generically as those that are unsaved. Um, and he's because of the fact that these lost people, the folks that are rejecting Christ, are going to trod the city of Jerusalem under the rule of the Antichrist for three and a half years. They're going to trod it underfoot. And they're going to be in control of it. They're going to have the power over it. And uh, he says in verse number 3, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days. Now, that's 1,260 days. <clears throat> and by the Jewish calendar of that day, that would be three and a half years exactly. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days, clothed in sackcloth. Now, there's been a lot of discussion. Um, who are the two witnesses? And the people talk about Moses and Elijah. And there's, there's, there's pretty good evidence that it could easily be Moses and Elijah. Some people are convinced of it. They think that's great. Some people think uh, there could be a possibility maybe of... Um, uh, my brain just died. Uh, Enoch that he could be a possibility. and uh, But here's, here's another one of those things. It's not important who they are. Because if it was, God would have told us who they are. And, and one of the things I think we often do in studying Scripture is we ask the wrong questions. We're sitting here oftentimes, we read Scripture, and in this case, a lot of people read this verse and they say, Who? are the two witnesses. And the question that really needs to be asked is, what are these two witnesses going to do? Uh, what is their purpose? Because what they do is far more important than who they are. I already spent some time, we took a little bit of time last time I was here, to express to you the fact that when it came time for the sermon or for the uh, Mount of Transfiguration experience, how Peter, of course, being very um, put, in his, put in his mouth all the time, he saw Moses and Elijah there with Christ, and they were in shimmering garments. They were shining like Christ. And, and he says, it's good for us to be here. Let's build a tabernacle for all three. And we remember what happened as soon as that took place. Uh, God sent a cloud and covered them, and uh, only they could see the Lord Jesus Christ, and that was it. And he said, this is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. And uh, he was kind of saying, look, we don't share God's glory here. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Who these two witnesses are are not any more important than who you and I are. They're servants of the Lord. That's all we need to know. Their purpose is to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. What they're doing here is keenly important, very much important. So let's look, take a quick look here at what these men are going to do. Uh, they're going to, first of all, prophesy. For the next 1260 days, they're going to indicate what is yet to come. They're going to tell people, and they're going to forewarn people things that are going to come. They are going to be immune to death during this time. There's going to be people who are going to try to harm them. Let's read down in verses 4 and following. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. And so even though they will try to kill these two, they will be killed themselves by that same manner. 
Uh, it's interesting that it says that by the word of their mouth or by their, uh, the fire will proceed out of their mouth. Um, it is interesting that God several times has given uh, in, his, in history, uh, and mainly under the time of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, the ability to call down fire or to at least forewarn that there will be fire and brimstone coming. And then it does. It comes as, as those men prophesied. These men have that capability. They have the ability to bring fire that devoureth the enemies, those that are still stiff-necked and rebellious towards the things of God. And if they try to kill these two witnesses, it won't succeed, but they themselves will be killed by the same manner. Um, there will come a time after the 1260 days that these two witnesses will be killed, uh, but not until their time is fulfilled. And uh, by the way, uh, I'm not a, I don't believe in that we are determined in every point in our lives. I believe God gives man a free will. very strongly believe in that. But, and there are things we can do to shorten our life. There's no doubt about that. We are not to tempt God with the idea that uh, He won't take me until it's my time. Uh, I don't like flying commercial. As much as I love flying airplanes, I don't like flying commercial. And I heard somebody say at one time, uh, I'm not so much worried that it might be my time to go, I'm worried it's the pilot's time to go. You know, And if I'm flying commercial, I don't have a chance to, to do anything about it. Um, we are not determined in, in every point of our life. We have free will. But we've got to be careful that we don't get to a point where we say, well, I won't be gone until Christ is through with me. Because the truth is we can shorten our life by the way that we live, by our testimony, uh, by the fruit that we bear in our lives. We need to be so very careful of this thing. Uh, that we don't say, well, I'm going to die at God's appointed time anyway, so I'm going to live however I want to. You need to understand and know this, that there are numerous accounts in Scripture where God shortened the life of someone. By the way, there are a few accounts of Him extending the life of those that are righteous. Now, He doesn't do so in every case, but there are times He does. Understand this, God can do what He chooses to do. He is not at our disposal. I, I spent some time here a number of weeks, a number of months ago, uh, dealing with the Word of Faith movement and how they believe that, they, that God cannot do anything unless they give Him authority. How arrogant that is. Uh, we do not give God authority to do things in our life. God does what God wants to do. And by the way, as God's children, we need to be pleased with what He chooses to do because He's always good and He is always right. We need to keep those things in mind as we see God at work. I know a lot of people say, boy, it's, that was a good person, and they suffered, and they died, and there were some things that uh, I just don't understand why God would do that to somebody like that. I, I may not always understand why, but I can always trust that He is always good, and I can always trust that He is always right. And therefore, I don't get bitter when I see things that don't make sense sometimes, humanly speaking, as to why good people suffer. And it seems like sometimes the evil prosper and the wicked prosper. Uh, let's go on down, and as we look at this, we find that in verse number 6, they used to have the power to shut the heaven, that it rained not in the days of their prophecy. They have the power over waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with all plagues. Notice this, as often as they will. So it seems to me that God has given them <coughs> not only power and authority. And by the way, understand this, that these two witnesses have no power other than the power given to them by the Lord. 
these are not miniature gods. These are servants. They are witnesses that God has enabled and empowered. By the way, they serve the same way you and I do. We only serve and have the power of God resting upon us as He chooses to put His power upon us. We can quench it, but we cannot gain it. It is at His discretion and at His will. It's something that He does. And if He chooses to give us His power, we can pray for it, we can ask for it, we can live in such a way that we do not hinder it if it's His will to do so. But He chooses where to send His power and when. And we need to understand this when it comes to verse number 7, that they have this power over the rain, they have the power over the waters, they have the power to turn them to blood. To smite the earth with all the plagues, but it also seems, as he makes this statement, as oft as they will, as often as they will, it seems to me that God has given them also discretion over when to bring plagues upon the earth. He's given them the wisdom and the understanding to know they are here at God's disposal. They are here to bring judgment upon God's enemies in this latter half of the tribulation period. We have not yet studied in depth chapters twelve through twenty, but this is known as the great tribulation, this latter half, this latter portion. If we thought that the travesties of the first three and a half years were bad, we have not seen anything like what's getting ready to come. And these two witnesses are there for that entire three and a half years dealing with these these plagues and these things that are going to happen during the last three and a half years. And it says in verse number 7, And when they shall have finished their testimony... The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead body... By the way, he's not going to overcome them because they're weak. He's going to overcome them because God allows it to happen. In this particular case, he's the one that has empowered them, and he's the one that has a purpose in them being killed. Because as we read on, it says in verse 8, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt. Now, he's referring here to Jerusalem when he calls this city uh, Sodom and Egypt. And the reason he does is because it is overrun of the Gentiles and has been for the last three and a half years because the Antichrist has come on the scene. And we haven't seen it in chapter 11, but when we get to chapters 12 and following, as we go back further and look and go back and relook at the details of it, we find that there is a, an abomination that takes place in the temple, an absolute desecration of the temple. And uh, they're, they're getting judged for these things. And uh, so he calls this city, this great city, in verse number 8, Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So we understand this to be Jerusalem. We know that to be Jerusalem by historical fact. And he calls them Sodom in Egypt during this time uh, because of their wickedness, their undoneness, their hardness of their hearts to the, to the Lord. And in verse 9 it says, And they of the people and the kindreds, and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. It seems like there is a movement of some to try to bury them and they're not permitted to do so. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the Spirit of Life, capital S, by the way, the Spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear, notice this, fell upon them which saw them. <clears throat> and they heard a great voice from heaven, saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, 
<coughs> and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and a tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. So a tenth part of them uh, is destroyed or slain, seven thousand of them. And it says here, the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, there's some interesting things in the wording here. The remnant is sometimes referred to as the believers that are outcasts, they're undergoing persecution, and we refer to them sometimes as the remnant. God always has a remnant. In this particular usage of the word remnant, it's in the context of the city itself and those that were slain. 7,000 were slain, it says, and the remnant, right on the heels of that, meaning those that were left, the 63,000 that were left in the city. Notice this, they were rejoicing in verse number 10. They were making merry and sending gifts one to another in verse number 10 because these two, these two uh, folks were, were killed. And, and when they see these two men rise and ascend to heaven, the Bible says this, they gave glory to the God of heaven. And the second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. It seems to me that these folks, while they give glory to God in the sense that they're saying, okay, God, you're the one who's done all of this. Uh, you're all-powerful, you're mighty, and they're, they're giving Him accolades. It does not seem that they still take Him personally as their Savior. Because it doesn't say that he took they, uh, that they uh, glorified their God, uh, and it's interesting because uh, when you read in the Old Testament, and, and especially in the story of Isaac, and even with Jacob for a period of time in his life, you find that he refers to God uh, as a distant uh, observation, the God of Abraham, the God of my fathers, and he refers to him that. After Bethel in Jacob's life, he refers to him as his God. This is my God now. Uh, he had a transforming work in his heart during that time period. And it's interesting, and I, you know, it could be that they did turn to Christ. I don't know. I do know they're giving glory to God. In other words, they're recognizing who is the one that is all-powerful, who is mighty, who is doing all of these things. They're giving Him glory. I'm not so sure that they have made a decision in their heart uh, to, to trust Him and to put their faith in Him. There are a lot of folks who say, Lord, Lord, who are not saved. The Bible speaks of that. There are many people that I know that are very, very religious. Uh, I had a conversation just recently with a fellow that's very, very religious, but lost. And gives glory to God. I mean, he'll talk very highly of God, and yet he's lost. When Paul was on one of his missionary journeys, he came to Corinth. And there was a woman who had the spirit of divination, the Bible says. The book of Acts gives this record. And she had some masters that made great gain of her. And she followed after Paul and uh, said, These men are the, uh, the servants of the Lord God, and you need to hear what they say. And they, she was proclaiming. Uh, that, that people needed to listen to what Paul was saying. And after a number of days, Paul turned and he was angry and he was wrath, wrathful toward her and he, he rebuked her and he told, he told uh, the Spirit to come out of her. And you say, well, why would Paul rebuke her? Wasn't she giving glory to God? Wasn't she uh, talking about the message that they were preaching that was right? 
Yes, but Paul had discernment to understand that her heart still was not given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Did she give glory to God? Sure. But she wasn't saved. Now, it could be, it could be that they do turn to Christ and they put their faith in Him. But it's interesting to me in the wording of this, it doesn't really seem that their heart has been changed as much as they do so out of fear. Um, And when it says here in verse number 13, that the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Again, it refers to Him as a a God of of heaven, not their God, uh, or the God that they were turning to. And then it says the second woe is passed, behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And so... Uh, We're getting ready to wrap up chapter 11 when the seventh angel sounds the seventh trumpet, uh, which is here at the end of chapter 11. We'll pick up there next Wednesday. And this is the beginning of the third woe and is a rather lengthy one and covers uh, chapters 12 through chapter 20 and is known as the Great Tribulation Period. And, uh, folks, I hope we we understand this tonight. Uh, These things, not only are they real and not only are they going to happen, but chances of them happening very, very soon are very high. And as we study this, I hope we're not just reading it for an interesting reading so that we are like, wow, that's interesting. I hope we're beginning to realize and understand that the judgment of the Lord is no joke. His wrath on the sinful condition of man and their rejection of His redemptive plan is no joke. He does not, He does not joke around or take it lightly. Uh, His wrath has to be displayed because He is just as just as He is merciful. He is just as righteous and holy as He is gracious and loving. And He must do these things. And I hope that it encourages us and and challenges us uh, not only to get our own lives in shape and to live in such a way that we are pleasing to Him and ready to go at any moment, But I hope it urges us and encourages us to share these things with others, to share the gospel story. Uh, It's sweet to the mouth. It may be bitter to the belly, but it is certainly sweet to the mouth to hear it and uh, to let men know that they do not have to die and go to hell. Um, I think it's one of the greatest truths that has been twisted. Satan always does that, doesn't he? He takes what God means for good and he makes something evil out of it. And the gospel message is the sweetest story, the most loving story, the most encouraging story ever given to man. The only truth, I hate to even use the word story, it's the truth that's ever been given to man. And yet Satan has caused the world to look at the the idea that men have to come to Christ to be saved. The world looks at that and says that's a judgmental and a mean-spirited God, and Satan has caused the world to be blinded to the long-suffering, the loving mercy and grace that God is extending to them during this time. But there is going to come a time where that's going to end. The redemptive work will be done. And now it is a matter of God's judgment taking place. And this is it. There is no more grace from this period. It's just the judgment of God. And uh, hope that we'll be aware of those things. If we're going to uh, reach people with this gospel, we need to be busy now. We need to be doing it now. I appreciate you tolerating the warmth of the room. And I know it's been long, but uh, let's uh, go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer, and we'll be back again next Wednesday. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it. And, Lord, may there, may there be a conviction upon our hearts. I pray that we don't just...
study or read through Revelation and look at the facts and the numbers and the figures and say, boy, that's interesting. Lord, may it, be, may it stir us. May it bring conviction to our hearts. And uh, help us 